0: some changes that he needs to make Pray that he would be open to making those changes. But, Father, nonetheless, I lift him up to you and just pray, Father, as you have given him this day of life. Pray, Father, that he would be glad and rejoice in it. And pray, Father, that you would give him many more. So, Father, we do pray that you would heal him and restore him back to health as well. And so, Father, we just thank you again for this opportunity for prayer. Lifting up our study tonight, Lord, that once more that you would just speak to us and guide us in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, so turning your Bibles Jeremiah chapter 46, we're going to be starting at verse one. Now we've kind to come to the place that we're going to be concluding Jeremiah for the next few chapters, next few weeks. but a constant theme throughout these last chapters is we're going to be looking at the surrounding nations, surrounding nations of Israel. Constant theme is going to be First Peter chapter four, verse 17. It reads, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so judgment is beginning at the house of God. All these other nations did not know the Lord as Israel should have known the Lord. They did not have the commandments of God as Israel had the commandments of God. The other nations, well, you're going to serve somebody, and the other nations served idols. Israel, Israel knew better, but nonetheless, they allowed the idolatry of the surrounding nations to affect them, and as all it did was take them away from the Lord. So what we've been studying in Jeremiah in detail is God's condemnation of Israel, specifically Judah and Jerusalem. Again, the northern country, it has been split. Assyria came in and took the northern country, Israel, captive. And then we've seen in Jeremiah that Babylon has come in and taken the southern kingdom of Judah captive now. And so the time has come that judgment, judgment is coming upon the house of God in Jeremiah, but we need to consider these things today as well. Now we're moving on to the consequences to come of the surrounding countries of Israel, those who are of the world and enemies of God and in opposition to Israel. So we see that just as surely as judgment is going to begin at the house of God, also Peter writes, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God or the word of God? And that's what we're going to start looking at tonight is the judgment that comes upon these surrounding nations. It's interesting as we have books of prophecy also in Isaiah and Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel as he is a contemporary of Jeremiah, we have these lists that are there as well. And so the book of Jeremiah, it concludes with this series of oracles or verbal presentations giving to the prophet and through the prophet concerning this judgment that is to come upon these nations. These nations that we see in these chapters have been previously listed in Jeremiah chapter 25. And so just as I have done in Isaiah and Ezekiel, I want you to picture Israel, Israel on a map. And Israel is surrounded by these nations just as they're surrounded by nations today that want to wipe them off the map. And what I want to do is I want to compare Israel to California. Maybe next week I'll get it so we can put it up on the screen and you can have that visual. But Israel to California. California's a little bit bigger than Israel, but nonetheless. And so if we draw those parallels, Israel, they're surrounded by Egypt. Egypt would be in the area, give or take, as Mexico is to us. There's Philistia. There's Philistia they would be in the area of San Diego. There's Moab, they would be in the area of Nevada. Ammon would be in the area of northern Nevada, which is in the area today of northern Jordan. Edom would be in the area of Arizona, southern Jordan. Syria would be in the area of Oregon slash Idaho. Kedar would be in the area of New Mexico. Hazar would be in the area of Oregon and Elam and Babylon, I don't know, would be in the area of Colorado, I guess. They're, they're further east. And so just so you can kind of get, those are the nations that are listed there. Just so you can kind of get an idea. These are the nations that are surrounding Israel. They are the nations of that day. And we see, well, we can compare it to us. Not that Nevada is going to come knocking on our door anytime soon. But you just see how close proximity they are. And these nations that are listed back then, these nations not specifically exist, but those nations that do surround Israel today are just as contrary to Israel as they have ever been. As we have seen in so many of our Bible studies and what we'll be looking at today is Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. The world, it's not just this physical planet, but the world is that which is contrary to God. You have that which is of the flesh or of the world and that which is of the spirit. And so Egypt is always pictured as the world. They say always, for the most part, pictured as the world. And so you had Egypt. They went into, I'm sorry, Israel. They went into Egyptian captivity. They were taken captive by the world, just as we were before we were born again with strong hand he entered it and he delivered Israel in a miraculous way the strongest nation in the world oh God obviously was able to overcome and deliver his people from the world and same thing God reached his hand into the world he delivered me and he delivered you as well God works that miracle of salvation as he delivers us and brings us into his marvelous kingdom and the reason that the world and the worldly are contrary to God? Well, we're told in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, Satan. Satan, from the very beginning, has been contrary to God. It looks like what we read in the book of Isaiah, that he was the worship leader at one time in heaven. But then he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to have God's uh, position. And he was cast out of heaven and he took one third of the angels with him. Now, Satan is not an equal of God's. He, you know, we think of This spiritual warfare, you think of God on one side and Satan on the other, and that's not how it is. God is superior to all. He just allows Satan to even exist for a period of time. But Satan, as he cannot get at God, what he can do is is get at God through God's people. And as we read through the beginning of the Bible all the way through, we see that this has been his method of operation all along. So every person ever born... There's only two camps, really. You'll either be of God or you'll be under the sway of the wicked one, under the direction you'll be used by the devil or you'll be used by the Lord. There is no middle ground. Problem with those of the world, their long-term prognosis is not very good. It's not good at all. Our long-term prognosis is excellent. It's eternity in the presence of God. And that gives us strength for today. It builds our faith in God and what God is able to do through us. That we're able to overcome those who are of the sway of the wicked one. And it also gives us hope for the future. And we'll even close today with God never leaves His people in despair. When He speaks of judgment, He always gives His people hope. And so... We have this world that we're looking at today, and I want to consider a few things before we get into our study, before we get into the judgments of the world. You see, the way things are going and on the news, and it can be hard to watch every single day. There's always something of despair. There was another shooting or attempted shooting, although this time there was somebody who was armed and was able to stop this particular person. But as I say, you know, as I said last Sunday, what is it going to be this week? And there is always something, there's just something, this, this world has just taken such an evil turn. And obviously it's because we have rejected God, and if you reject God, if you reject proper biblical morals, then the devil is going to enter in, and that is what's happened. And so as far as the future history of the world, there are five main views that I just want to take time and just kind of look at. You'll be able to see these things in our society. You'll be able to see these beliefs and people who are of the world, but five main views concerning the future history of the world and the path that is taking us there. The first four are going to be those of people who are ignorant to the word of God. And first one, the first idea concerning the future history of the world and the path that is taking us there is the idea of inevitable progress. The idea is, is that, that the thought that we are constantly progressing towards something better is always before us. It's the idea that things are always going to get better and one, way we'll, one day we'll achieve all that we desire. And the idea is if you ponder the past and compare it to the present and project it to the future, society is headed to some sort of paradise, a time when there are no incurable diseases. All the races and nations will live in harmony during that day. Now, I'm not talking about the time when the Lord comes back. This is apart from the Lord, this belief. There is a one one world rule and one world religion all areas of commerce have been standardized, and this being the case, there's going to be no more wars. This is the idea of the socialist movement that we see coming into vogue even today. But the problem with these things are, there's always going to be diseases. Why? Because sin has entered into the equation. Man, man in all of his brilliance, and all of his effort, and all of his abilities, We can't touch cancer. We can slow cancer down, but we can't stop it. People continue to get sick, and people continue to die, which will happen until the Lord says no more. All the races and nations live in harmony. How's that going for them? I mean, it seems like we've gotten past this, but here we are right back once again. Whatever the reason, we're here, and it's not going to go away. Why isn't it going to go away? Because man will always seek to exalt himself. And we always look at the exterior to exalt ourselves. And if I can't find any other way, I'll use something like the color of my skin or whatever it might be to exalt me over you. And that's what's happening today. The only way that man's going to live in perfect harmony is in the body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. One world rule and one world religion. What is it that has always divided mankind? Is nationalism... And religion, look how religion, and when I say religion, man seeking to reach up to God rather than a relationship that comes about from God reaching down to mankind. But religion, our religions have drawn a huge dividing line amongst humanity, and that just simply is not going to change unless man enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as far as nationalism, we'll always exalt ourselves over other nations. So those border lines, they're always going to exist. Nationalism will always exist. World religions are always going to exist. And there's going to come divisions because of this. Because apart from Jesus Christ, none of it's going to work anyway. All areas of commerce are standardized. There's been a lot of motions that have made in that direction but the problem is is that our country needs to be reduced in order for that to happen and other nations artificially increased for that to happen and that's just simply not going to work and then as far as no more wars I grew up in the 60s and then even into the 70s, I was becoming closer and closer to 18 and the Vietnam War was still going on and it ended, I believe, when I was 17, just before, maybe a year before I changed, I turned 18 and they stopped the draft. And then you just kind of figured when that war was over, there was going to be no more. But wars continue to persist and they will continue to go as long as sinful man has opportunity to exalt himself over other nations. The Bible tells me that man will come close to this at one point, but instead of a progression, it's going to end up being a regression. This will all be led by a one world ruler that we call, or the Bible calls, the Antichrist. The second idea is is that history is a matter of cycles. It's cyclical. The various empires that rise up reach a level of complacency. Then they go into decline. And after a period of time, they disappear. And there's an element of truth to that as well. You look at Egypt today. What kind of nation is Egypt? Well, it's a third world country. Well, it used to be of the known world. It used to be the cream of the crop. Rome owned the majority of the world for a period of time. Are we even concerned about Rome today? They've been reduced. England. England, it said, the sun never set on the English empire. The small, relatively to other nations, small uh, island in the Atlantic ruled just all over the world, but they've been reduced and continue to be reduced even today. Some say that the United States of America has reached its peak and is on decline, and that is very possible as well. And so we see that those who are of the world, can't hold on to what they've been able to, at least in their mind, achieved within the world. Remember what Solomon said as he was looking at the world apart from God in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And so as Solomon was looking at the world apart from God, it just seemed to go in these cycles that never stopped and these cycles that never end. The third view is the second law of thermodynamics. This is the view that the cosmos, and again, all of these have elements of truth. The cosmos are as a clock that has been wound up and is now winding down. The sun is getting smaller, which it is. The earth is in a state of disrepair, which it is. And there will come a time when life is no longer possible. And it does seem like we'll be headed in that direction once again apart from God. And then fourthly, there is the view that history is a meaningless, lawless, and shapeless sequence of events. I have decided to call this Doris Day theology. Okay, sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see. The idea here is is that things are just spiraling out of control. And then we have the fifth view. This is the biblical view of future world history. And so if we're going to look at the biblical view, we go to the Bible, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, describes the future of the world perfectly. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, or it will come very unexpectedly in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now, he's not talking about the dwelling place of God heaven. He's talking about space, and he's talking the sky and all the place, the dwelling place of the planets, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. What seems to be described here is, is a nuclear explosion. And I really believe that that's how God is going to bring an end to the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about us shooting nuclear rockets kind of a thing and destroying the earth. I'm talking about when God says time is up. When God says time is up, time is going to be up. What's a nuclear explosion? Well, it's a chain reaction that starts when neutrons strike the heavy, now this is just what we're able to do, uranium or plutonium nuclei. (laughs) nucleus, which splits, releasing a tremendous amount of energy along with two or more neutrons, which in turn split more nuclei, and so on. So we've been able to shoot particles at uranium or plutonium, and we've been able to split the atom. And as that atom splits, it releases two more nuclei, which split other atoms. So you have what's called a chain reaction. Now, this is a chain reaction in a controlled environment. This produces a lot of heat and a lot of energy, what we would call an atomic explosion. Now, the only elements that we are able to split, really the only natural element that we are able to split, is uranium. We can split plutonium, but that's kind of a man-made kind of a thing. But uranium is the only one, as far as I know, that we're able to split. Now... What happens when God decides that it's over? He'll split them all. The periodic table, all the elements that exist, what happens when those are split and that chain reaction goes off? Everything is just going to cease to exist. It's going to be pretty much instantaneous. And we see here in Peter in 2 Peter, everything is going to be destroyed down to the very elements. The building block of all of creation is the elements. On that periodic table, you can see there the elements that you are created of, that chair is created of, and even the air that we breathe is created of. What happens when all of those elements are split? You're going to have this huge explosion, and it's going to come instantaneously, and everything will be gone. This will be done by the hand of God. It's not going to be done while we're here. You guys, you get out of it. We're, we get out of it free. Well, not free. Christ paid the price. But nonetheless, by the grace of God, there's going to come that time after the millennial rule reign when all of humanity is judged that because sin has infected the world to the degree that it has, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But what's going to happen to the old one? Well, we see here what's going to happen to the old one. So what we're looking at tonight is the short of prophecy of the world to see the long of prophecy concerning the world. These things that were going on during Israel's day back then, I mean, other than the judgment that has, temporary judgment that has come upon Israel, but these surrounding nations that are Israel's enemies, They still exist today. Maybe not the same specific one, but again, if you take a map today of Israel, you look at the nations that are around them, they're all contrary to Israel. Some have diplomatic relations like Jordan does today, but nonetheless, for the most part, they're contrary to Israel. So, to a degree, things have gotten better, but they haven't really changed. And they're going to get a whole lot worse in the future. And so the things that we look at that happened in the past... We can see how elements of those are still in existence today, and we'll look in the future and see how, well, the judgments that came in the past are going to be magnified by the judgment that one day is going to come in the future. Now, there are two main oracles against Egypt here in this chapter. The first oracle is in verses 2 through 12. It's before the battle of Char uh, Chemish. This battle was against Babylon in the area of the Euphrates River. Babylon and Egypt and Assyria are gathered together. Why? Well, because Assyria was the world power, but now they've been reduced. Babylon has come upon the scene. Assyria has come and gotten Egypt, and they've allied themselves together because Babylon's gotten pretty powerful. And this battle of Carchemish, they've come up against one another, and what has happened, and they fought it in the area of the Euphrates River, Babylon decimated Egypt and Assyria, and Egypt and Assyria both, they were never the same. And then we'll see the second oracle. The second oracle is in verses 13 through 26. It's at that time that Israel had fled to Egypt for protection from Babylon. Problem, Egypt would not even be able to protect themselves, and we had seen earlier what's going to happen when Babylon enters into Egypt. Now keep in mind, we're going to be going back chronologically as we've been looking at Jeremiah. We're going back now. We're, we're backing up and we're looking at what is hap- going to happen to these nations. So chapter 46 through to the end of the chapter was really before the fall of Judah. Matter of fact, we have a little bit of a timeline here in verse 1. It says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the nations, verse 2, against Egypt, concerning the army the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates and Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So once again, that gives us the time frame, it gives us the win. It's in about 605 BC that the battle of Carchemish is about to be fought. And again, as I said before, Babylon has come upon the scene. Now, what is Babylon referred to in the scriptures? As the servant of God. Babylon, it's not that they have this heart for the Lord, but this is a tool that God is using to bring his judgment to those nations of the world. And so Babylon wins Assyria. Assyria, at this point, after this battle, is pretty much going to cease to exist as a nation. Egypt, they'll retreat back to Egypt, but they're reduced in power and influence. And actually, they've been weakened to such a degree that when Babylon does attack, they're able to repulse Babylon one time, but sooner or later, they're going to be overrun by Babylon. Why is it necessary to have the date, to have the time frame here? So we could look back and see how the history book is in perfect harmony with God's book. Now, God is telling us these things before they happen. The history book, we're able to look back and see what has happened. So in the Bible, the intent, God's desire is that you would read your Bible, and you would see how God has spoken what has happened, and it came to pass, or what was going to happen, and it came to pass. So that as I read my Bible, when I come upon things that he said are still going to happen, I'll be of the mindset that I know that those things are going to happen. Why? Because of the proof. I take my history book, and I look back, and I see, wow, just as God said that was going to happen, it did happen. So I look at the things in the future. Wow, God said some pretty amazing things are going to happen. We just looked at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the destruction of the world. And so as God's got a perfect record all the way up to today, these things are going to happen in the future. Therefore, what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we to be? We, we need to be found faithful in what God has called us to do. We need to be diligent because we never know when the time is going to end. We never know when the rapture of the church is going to happen, the tribulation, the great white throne judgment, and the destruction of the world. As I've said so many times, and I'll repeat it once again, it's very possible you're ministering to people, you come in contact with people who are going to be going through the tribulation You know, if the Lord raptures the church during our lifetime. And so I see time is of the essence. And so history book and God's book, the Bible, they have corresponding dates concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, but also the fall of Egypt during this era. The history book tells us that Pharaoh Nico ruled Egypt from 610 to 595, which fits both God's history book and mankind's history book. So all of these things work together. It's important that we know these things. Jesus said in John chapter 14, not speaking of prophecy, at least here, in verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, that you may believe. He's not speaking, taking that a little bit out of context, but that's what God does. He tells us of what's going to come to pass before it comes to pass, so that when it does come to pass, you would believe that God's hand is upon all. And so as we see the state of our society, how do we keep from falling apart as we read the news and seeing that things are seemingly spiraling out of control? Well, I know the hand of God is upon all. Nothing happens apart from the Lord. He allows all to happen that is happening. And he also has told us that all things are going to work together for his good, all working according to his plan. I'm not going to always understand that before they happen or as they're happening, but sooner or later, you'll be able to look back and see how God has worked these things for the good. Now, the second warning that God gives is why. And the easy answer is why these things are happening specifically to Egypt, but also mankind, the nations in the future, is because of their arrogance. Their arrogance in that they have placed themselves over God, and some have even placed themselves as a God. Verses 3 through 9. Order the buckler and the shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears. Put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back. For fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall towards the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this coming up like a flood, whose waters move like the river's? Egypt rises up like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield, and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. Some of that is boasting from Egypt, and some of that is God telling what's going to happen. But all through history... It's been a commonality. When a leader of a nation proclaimed himself to be a god, it was always the beginning of the end. Now, as far as Egypt, what was so special about Egypt? Why do we keep hearing about Egypt? And even Egypt, what's so significant about Egypt that it would be in existence today? Well, it was their proximity to the Nile River. The Nile River was the reason for Egypt's influence and its power. The Nile Delta, now a delta, if you don't know, the Nile River would flow from Central Africa north towards. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea, where it dumps into the sea, it would kind of fan out at times it would flood its banks and it would spread out into kind of a marshland and What is happening is taking nutrient rich soils from the interior of Africa and it 's depositing them in that delta region and what made i 'm sorry egypt so powerful he who controls the food controls the power, and so Egypt was very powerful because of the food that they were able to produce based upon the Nile River and the Nile Delta. And so, this being the case, we need to see that Egypt was a desirous area. Now, we see when Joseph went into Egypt, how he had favor with Pharaoh. But after a while, Israel lost favor with Pharaoh. What you have to understand is that Egypt changed hands a lot. A nation would go in, conquer Egypt, and they would set up their own rule there, and then they would be, they would rule Egypt, and we refer to them as Egyptians, although maybe they came from Assyria, or maybe they, you know, wherever else they may have come from. But Egyptians is at this time, and really throughout history, were not true Egyptians. They were basically a hybrid people that have come from all over the area, the various conquering armies, again, because it was just simply so desirous. The greatness that Egypt claimed is not because of anything, though, that they have done, but it's what God has created. The Nile was worshipped as a god, and Pharaoh said that he was the creator of the Nile, and so Pharaoh was putting himself in the place of God. So we see the arrogance of the world here as they go off to battle. Now, this is going to fit an event that is going to happen in the future. We see in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, most of you know it as the battle of Armageddon. In verse twelve it says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, so the idea is that these kings are under the sway of the wicked one, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. Why? to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now, we were there, if you went to, well, I know you didn't, not everybody here, but when we went to Israel, we were on Mount Carmel and we were at Mount Megiddo, specifically Mount Megiddo. Mount Megiddo overlooks the Rio Valley or the Valley of Armageddon. And if you stand up there and you look out over that valley, it's very apparent that all of the troops of the world today would be able to fit in that valley. It wouldn't wouldn't even be a stretch. It, it's huge. It's really big. In California, if you're going up north and you go through the San Joaquin Valley, how big that is, where Bakersfield is and, and all... It's about the size of it, maybe not quite that big, but it is huge. And so there's going to come that time when nations are arrogantly going to come together. Now they're coming together against one another, but who's ultimately in control here? Well, we just saw the demons. Satan is in control. He's gathering these nations all together. They're thinking they're going to do battle against one another, but what happens at that time? It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you see that, we're not going to turn there, but you see that in Revelation chapter 19. And they're going to turn to do battle against the Lord Jesus Christ. Man in his arrogance and in his deception is going to think that he's able to emerge victorious by doing battle against God. But what's going to happen? We'll, We'll look at just the verse in a little bit, but the Lord's just going to, through his spoken word, through his spoken word, and they're going to fall in that valley and be food for the birds of the air. We see the short and the long of this prophecy when it comes to the fate of these nations. Verses 10 and 10 through 12. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, the day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be statuated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines, but you shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame, and your cry has filled the land, for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They both have fallen together, speaking of Egypt and Assyria. So just as the prophecy of this battle of Karchemish played out, as we were told, so and we can have a confidence, will the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19:21 speaks of those who are gathered together against the Lord at his coming. You'll be with the Lord at his coming if you're a born-again believer today. You'll be there. You're not going to be doing any fighting. There's no real fighting done from our perspective. We're there as witnesses. The Lord, well, it says, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. That would be Jesus Christ, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Can you imagine just all of the armies of the world and just filling that valley, any valley, and just the Lord just with a word, and they all fall over and die. And it's a great victory that we have. It's what we see in the word of God, and we see in the power of the word of God. And we see that those who stand against the word of God are going to meet their demise. The third warning that God gives, again, is why, if you will, part two, verse 13 through 19 the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. So, just as that 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 great battle near the Euphrates River, that Babylon was able to defeat both Egypt and Assyria, Assyria was destroyed, Egypt went back to Egypt, now Babylon later on will come up against Egypt, but they'll be repulsed. It wasn't God's timing yet. But then after they defeat Uh, Jerusalem Judah then they go and they attack Egypt once again God then allows it and they basically destroy uh, Egypt as they were known back then so again verse 13 the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet how Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon would come and strike the land of Egypt declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol. Proclaim in Noph, Noph would be Memphis, not Tennessee, Memphis in Egypt, and in Tapanhes uh, say, Stand fast and prepare yourselves, for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? Did they not stand? Because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall, yes, one fell upon another, and they said, Arise, let us go back to our own people, into the land of our nativity, for the oppressed, from the oppressed sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. As I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely Tabor is amongst the mountains, as Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. O you daughters dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourselves to go into captivity, for Noph shall be wasted and desolate without inhabitant. Noph is a city in, in, uh, in Egypt. And so... God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt through Moses. We've seen that in the book of Exodus. We'll be studying that when we get through the epistles on Sunday morning. But a common problem throughout the history of Israel, from the time that they were delivered from Egypt all the way through, is Israel, and we can see the concept in the church as well, kept going back. God will take man out of the world, but man will not necessarily remove the world or the desire for the world from his life. Israel had a long history of forsaking God and heading back to Egypt, if you will, heading back to the world. Abraham did it. His son Isaac did it. Solomon went there for a wife And now we see that Israel, rather than being obedient to the word of God that was delivered through the prophet to stay in the area of Judah, Jerusalem specifically, has gone to Egypt for protection rather than seeking God out, and now God is going to bring disaster upon them. We saw in chapter 42 that the prophet warned them not to seek refuge in the world, but they would not listen. Isaiah said in Isaiah 31 verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. And that's what I'm saying. We can look at the news and we can think in despair, what are we going to do? Just continue to seek God out. God is your protector. God is going to be your peace. And God is your comfort. As I've said so many times before, things are not falling apart. Things are falling into place. And we can look at the Bible and we can see these. And that should strengthen us. Why? Because we see as things are falling into place, they're falling in place according to how God's word said that they were going to fall into place. And so what that tells me, once again, God's in control. God's in total control of your life because he loves you and he cares for you and he's going to protect you. And so in the midst of that, That's what we cling to. We cling to God in faith and hope. Faith, trusting in God for today. Hope, trusting in God for tomorrow. Egypt had to go. Pharaoh thought he was a god, and Israel treated Egypt as their god, and they're both going to suffer the consequences. God will strip you of anything that you place between him and you, and that's exactly what he's doing. Fourthly, the fourth warning that God gives is how He will lay waste to Egypt verses twenty through twenty six Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes it comes from the north, that would be Babylon also her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they also are turned back, they have fled away together. they did not stand for the day of their calamity had come upon them the time of their punishment. her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army, and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched, because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughters of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of Nile and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings Pharaoh and those who trust in him and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and the hand of his servants afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old says the Lord and so if you're a Jew and you're hearing this and you're in Egypt because you've gone there to hide from Babylon and sought the protection of Pharaoh he just said that I will bring punishment on those who trust in Pharaoh. And so Israel is going to be part of that punishment. And it's that reason, part of that reason, why we are to be separated from the world. The world's going to be judged. It's going to be destroyed. We just saw that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Do you really want to be part of the world? That's there. It may look attractive for today, but in the world, I'm sorry, in the future, it's going to be destroyed. And so you look at this and you think, Man, it's just total despair. But never does God leave his people in despair because the last two verses of this chapter, it's our last point tonight, it's not a warning at all, but it's God giving his people hope. In, in the midst of the judgment to come, God's people always have hope. And where's our hope? Our hope is in the fulfillment of what was being spoken of back then the Messiah who has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27. But do not fear my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. So he's speaking about the preservation of Israel and Judah. And he's also talking that this is a future event, because he's talking of their offspring. We know it's going to be 70 years. Verse 28, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. So they're going to have to suffer some, some, some pretty strict punishment because they've been on disobedience of the Lord. But God is not going to judge them as he is going to judge the world. Sometimes God allows some pretty hard things to come into a born-again believer's life. But why does God do it? God does it so that you would be separated from the world. God does it so you would be corrected and you would come back into his good grace, the place where he blesses you. The world is going to be judged, but we'll be corrected. We'll be corrected, and our correction is for the purpose of restoration, for God to bring us into that place where we're under the shadow of his wings. Going back to that well-known previous verse, looking at the verses that surround it in Jeremiah. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. God wants them to have hope, to trust in Him for the future. God does not have thoughts of evil towards them. This is all working together for good. It says in verse 12, "...then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord." and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Father, we just thank you, God, for the hope that you gave, but you gave that hope for the purposes of today, that we too would have hope in this present evil age. But, Father, there is no hope apart from you, and it all depends upon who is your child and who is under the sway of the wicked one. And I just pray, Father, for this time and this day, even right now, Lord, these things that are going on can truly get the better of us. And I just pray, Father, that we would be a people that would keep our eyes firmly upon you through prayer, through fellowship, and through your word. And so, Father, you've told us these things are going to happen. And, Lord, we have confidence as they come to pass that you are under control. And so, Father, I lift up those right now who are sitting in this room. And I just pray, Father, that you would bless them for coming here tonight. I pray, Father, that you would seek them, Lord, and that you would seek them out, Father, especially the ones who maybe have walked away and bring them back into your fold. I pray, Father, for the peace that surpasses understanding, that's a calmness of spirit in difficult days, that, Lord, we would truly understand that you're working out your will. And so, Lord, I just take this time right now, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, Father, is there anybody in this room, Lord, I just pray that you would impress upon their heart who you're speaking to tonight, who maybe is in despair, maybe is going through a difficult time, maybe has yet to even make a commitment to you. And I just ask right now, if there's anybody here that that's going on in your life, raise your hand and allow me to pray for you. Is there anybody here who just the world and the things of the world have just gotten the better of you? Is there anybody here who just feels like you're just in despair and, and you're not receiving joy in your Christian life? Or maybe you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You get to define it, however it is that God meets you. Is there anybody here tonight? I see your hand. Is there anybody else? I'm just going to pray for you. Anybody else? Father, you've seen the hand that has gone up before you, Lord, and I just pray that you would meet that person Meet that person, Father, just as truly as you met Israel back then and you have delivered these things through your word to us today. It's for these purposes of strengthening the hope of your people. And I just pray, Father, for the hand that has gone up for that person, Lord, that you would bless them. Pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them the surety of your word and your will within their lives. And that, Father, they would find that peace that surpasses understanding And so, Father, you know, and they know why they raised their hand, and I pray that you would just simply meet them there. And so, Father, we just thank you for tonight. I just pray, Lord, as you have blessed our time in your word, that you would bless this last worship psalm and our time in fellowship. God, that you just simply be glorified through all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Sunday morning, we're going to be in James, Sunday evening in Psalm 119. And then after Sunday evening service, it's Terry Taco time. So I invite you to come out. Danny's going to be here. I invite you to come out for a time of fellowship. God bless you guys.
1: into what thirsty heart. AGAIN. to You could You could Amen. <laughs> God bless you guys and see you Sunday and Sunday night for Terry's Tacos.